There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. I was very interested to see last night, uh, and I, I'm sure most of you guys saw it also, is that uh, Dateline NBC and 2020 both covered this case, of course, the Idaho quadruple uh, case with an arrest of... Uh, PhD student Brian Koberger. And it seemed when you watched it, uh, it was so, it was, well, it's not simple in any means, but yet two months of watching this case and sort of feeling the pain of the, of the victims' families and the folks of Moscow, Idaho, and of the police and it sort of seemed to be in in the two hours they covered it, synopsized into what we all know. You, you, you really almost cannot synopsize this case. There were so many highs and lows in this case, and, and I don't even know if high or low is a good way to describe it. But when you see on the screen now, I have pictures of these the four these four beautiful kids, and and that they lost their lives during this case, and. Uh, it's almost when you when you look at the reality of it, it's almost too hard to believe that this occurred, you know. And then when you put put the the brutality into it, that they lost their lives at knife point, uh, stabbing, and all of what that entails—the evidence and the the DNA and the blood evidence and the touch DNA—I think many folks here are learning some of these things for the very first time. And I, I don't ever like to refer them to them as the four students. I'd like to refer to them by their names. Ethan Chapin, Zaina Canodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves. And they, they are real human beings. And they lived on this earth, you know. And they lost their lives to this act of savagery for really an unknown reason. And we're finding out a lot more right now. Those of us that have followed this and covered this from the very beginning, yeah, is, is it, if, you, if you're a follower of true crime, is it an interesting case? Absolutely. I mean, we haven't seen anything like this. And uh, I've said before on, on my shows that, um, that serial killers are rare. And one of the reasons they're so rare is because of technology and the technology that we have today, uh, of course, number one being DNA, probably the most important uh, scientific breakthrough in the 21st century regarding solving uh, crime and serial killers. And one of the reasons I say that also is that because serial killers today don't get to become serial killers because you as we know to become a serial killer you have to have two incidences not two uh victims two separate incidents with time in between and that's the definition the fbi definition of what a serial killer is um so many because of technology today does this brian koberger does he appear to be, does he seem to be, to have all of the psychological characteristics of a potential serial killer? Could he have killed before? Uh, I, you know, I'm not an expert on this. I'm totally, I admit it right away, I'm, I'm no expert on this. But could he have killed before? Could this smiling, nutty graduate student, well, not even graduate, PhD student, and criminology could he have done this before he's deeply deeply disturbed based upon a lot of what we see now 
The New York Times described it as a criminology PhD student charged with stabbing four University of Idaho students to death had written years ago of having suicidal thoughts, not being able to feel emotions and observing his own life as if it were a video game, saying he could do whatever I want with little remorse. That's scary in itself. Uh, this is according to the New York Times. The new revelations about the suspect, Brian Koberger, come from posts he made on an online forum which he discussed his mental health struggles, as well as from interviews with those who knew him and messages sent to friends that were obtained by the New York Times. They paint a portrait of an anxious, isolated, and depressed teenager who turned to heroin use before eventually getting clean and becoming fascinated with studying criminal psychology, saying then that he hoped to one day provide counseling for high-profile criminals. So where does this interest come in high-profile criminals, in crime? According to the Times, I feel like an organic sack of meat with no self-worth, he wrote in 2011 when he was 16. Adding later in the same post, as I hug my family, I look into their faces, I see nothing. It is like I'm looking at a video game, but less. And we all know that now Brian Koberger is facing quadruple murder, first-degree charges. And in regards to Idaho law, could be facing uh, the, the death penalty. Um, and of course, you know, the Times goes into the fact that he's maintaining his innocence through his lawyer. And on Thursday, he waived his right to a speedy preliminary hearing. A judge set a June date for the hearing when prosecutors will outline evidence and attempt to prove they have probable cause to try him on murder charges. So a, a lot, a lot of this stuff to us is you know, sort of like, I don't know, it's, it's in, in my mind, it, it, it somehow muddies the waters a little bit. And how, what do I mean by that? Well, I think there's very strong evidence in this case. I think the evidence against Brian Koberger uh, is tremendously strong evidence. The DNA, uh, the knife sheath, the white Hyundai Elantra, uh, the um, the blood evidence on the scene, I'm sure, you know, a lot of the evidence I'm sure that the police have, they have yet to release. It's interesting to know that also a smoking gun evidence to me is the cell phone pings. And what did we find out? We found out that not only did it track him, oh, the night of the murder or the early morning of the murder, he had turned his cell phone off between, I believe it may have been like 2.30 and 4.30 or 4.45 in the morning. He turned it off. Why did he turn his cell phone off? Well, because he knows that that's one of the ways law enforcement will track you and catch you, capture you, is to pull up the pings on cell towers on where you were and what was your route and all of that stuff. And then he turns it back on at 0445 and I don't don't quote me on the exact time so that was almost more damning than having his cell phone on the whole time and then we find out also and a lot of this we're finding out for, for the first time that they have video of him parking his car behind the house they have video of his car circling the block they have his, they have video of him on 12 other occasions and cell phone pings recon that's what we call it in law enforcement reconning the location checking it out like law enforcement when we hit a warrant we'll do what's called a recon we'll check it out we'll check out to see the location this killer this murderer and again people get upset when you don't say oh he's innocent to proven guilty okay i'll add that in there he's innocent to proven guilty He's been arrested based on very strong probable cause. Probable cause being facts and circumstances that would allow a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been committed and the person arrested committed the crime. That's the definition of probable cause. Do you guys think they have probable cause? What do you think in the chat? Uh, 
I definitely think that they do, you know. Um, so where the question is, and, and if you watch the um, 2020 and um, Dateline NBC last night, I think most of us that have been re religiously following this case knew every single thing they spoke about. There was nothing coming to us from those reports that was surprising because we have been reporting on this since November 13th. And we have followed this religiously and followed this with angst and followed this with having the broadcast media and the online media sort of steering parts of this direction to a place that wasn't true and wasn't correct. You know, they all, we all talk about the food truck guy, the neighbor, all these creepy people that were surely the murderer, you know, and it turns out, uh, not only were they not the murderer, but a lot of online people. And, and also, let's not excuse the mainstream media for their part in this. They sensationalize many things. and But we took a ride with this, with all of this stuff. Who might this killer be, you know? And we talked about victimology. The answer is in the victimology of the victims, the background of the victims. And all of that has to be followed through in any investigation. Over, I believe they said 14,000 tips. Imagine the police and the FBI having to comb through every single one of those tips and, and answer it out. And uh, amazing, right? I'm going to play a little bit of this. This is from Law and Crime, and they're listing seven of the most important things in this investigation. You'll recall that Brian Koberger is charged with murdering four University of Idaho students. They are Maddie Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. When Koberger was arrested in an early morning raid on his parents' home in Pennsylvania more than two weeks ago, the news was a surprise. He's someone that wasn't on the public's radar, but the affidavit says Moscow police had been aware of him since late November. When he was arrested, many wondered, who will represent him? His family said they couldn't afford to hire a lawyer. And with this possibly being a death penalty case, the public defenders in Lataw County, Idaho, were not qualified to handle it. Ann Taylor is the chief public defender for the Coeur d'Alene area in Idaho, about two hours north of Moscow. And she was appointed to represent Brian Koberger. Ms. Taylor, do you wish to uh, argue bail at this time? Your Honor, I would like to ask the court to consider setting a bond. Mr. Koberger right now is on a no bond hold. But it's a limited request as I don't have enough information. Court records that were recently unsealed. Folks, what do you think of that? What do you think if they ever granted Brian Koberger bail in this case? Is that unthinkable to most of us? It's unthinkable to me. Not only is he a flight and a danger to the community, but he's probably a danger to himself also, you know? And I think of, uh, you know, the politics of New York City with bail reform. Someone like this would probably actually be considered in New York City, which I find horrific. Uh, I just wanted to see what you guys felt about it. K-Me, thank you for the $5 super chat. I will, I will say they said that his phone was so close it hooked up to their Wi-Fi, not just pings. That was crazy to me. Kami, you know something? You're right. We found out about that from Stephen um, um, uh, Consalves, that he told us that, that he was so close to their house that his phone actually hooked up to the 1122 King Street's Wi-Fi. Scary, right? House, but is that pretty damn strong electronic evidence? I think so showed that Taylor was appointed to represent Koberger within hours of his arrest on December 30th. She immediately filed motions invoking his right to counsel, saying law enforcement should not speak to him, and she won an order to preserve the crime scene. Police had started cleaning out that King Road house that very day. Next, Kaylee Gonsalves' sister, Olivia, spoke recently, just in the last several days, for the first time since Brian Koberger was arrested. Olivia Gonsalves was critically involved in this investigation. She found cell phone records belonging to her sister that helped with the timeline, and she also found that Twitch video 
of Kaylee and Maddie Mogan at the Grub food truck in the hours before they were murdered. She spoke to News Nation. You know, folks, I just want to just backtrack a little bit. One of the things we also found out that we look at now is that the police knew day one was that DM was an eyeball witness, an eyeball and an ear witness to this, to the killer. So how much of his face was reported that he was wearing a mask, but she saw his physicality. She saw his body. She saw how he walked. How much of his face? Could she actually identify Brian Koberger? We don't know that. And we had uh, Michael Vecchione on, who was a uh, former Brooklyn district attorney and chief of the Homicide Bureau in Brooklyn. And he said if he was prosecuting this case, she would be the absolute first person that he would put on the stand. He would open his case with, with DM on the stand. Following Koberger's initial appearance. I think we always presume, you know, innocence. I don't think it really hit me until the affidavit was released and I was able to um, kind of read that and, and process that. And then you not only have a name and a face, but, uh, you know, the beginnings of a case against him. The relief that we all felt having a suspect in custody was, uh, it, it was like, I, I can't even describe it. Like the weight of the world was lifted from our shoulders. Olivia Gonsalves said that she will attend all of the future court appearances. The day that Brian Koberger was arrested, Moscow police, with the assistance of police in Pullman, Washington, executed a search warrant on Koberger's apartment near the campus of Washington State University. As you can imagine, the documents pertaining to that search warrant could reveal a lot of information, including uh, what items were seized by law enforcement. But the warrant and documents related to it are sealed until March 1st of this year, according to an order from the court in Whitman County, Washington. It turns out the warrant was requested the day before Koberger was arrested. So, of course, law enforcement wouldn't have wanted Koberger's name released until after he had been taken into custody. The order sealing those documents said that making this information public before the arrest could have endangered effective law enforcement, possibly caused a premature end to the investigation, and endangered public safety. There have been a lot of questions about whether or not Brian Koberger knew any of the four victims in this case. The families are looking at possible connections. We know that they've been going through social media and things like that. The attorney for the Gonsalves family said they've looked for any connections between Kaylee and Koberger. And he said this week that Kaylee did not know Brian Koberger. And any information the family has gathered has been turned over to Moscow police. You know what we uh, what we don't know is could she have had uh, Kaylee have had a casual encounter with Brian Koberg? By that I mean she was a waitress in a restaurant in a Greek restaurant. Could he have come in as a patron to that restaurant? Could she have said something that in his sick, distorted mind distorted what he said? Could he have thought he had? a deeper relationship than he had and when he actually had no relationship with her. But this is a, uh, a person that uh, is not of sound. He's sane. He's, there's no way he's going to get an insanity defense, uh, defense to this case. However, uh, maybe we should describe his thinking as warped. And I know that's not a scientific word, but uh, it's a police word, warped. He's a little warped. It's really unknown at this point in time whether or not any of the other three victims crossed paths with Koberger or knew him in any way. Meanwhile, the attorney for the Gonsalves family, Shannon Gray, offered support for that surviving roommate who's been named as DM in court documents. The affidavit said that she actually heard crying coming from Zana Carnodal's room uh, the morning of the homicides. She heard somebody who sounded like a man saying, I'm going to help you. It's okay. And she also saw a man she didn't know walking out of the house through a sliding glass door. There have been a lot of questions about why she went back into her room and 911 wasn't called for another eight hours. In the affidavit, she said she froze, but Shane Ray is offering support to her because so many people have questioned and criticized her for not calling 911 immediately. 
we all have to remember that she is a victim in this case. You know, I don't know if anybody can, everyone's there to second guess what happened uh, and how she should have or might have could have reacted. Um, You know, she states in the, I think in the affidavit that she froze moment and went back in her room and, you know, and ultimately the 911 call wasn't made until later, you know, eight hours later, I believe, or something along those lines. But who knows? I mean, people, maybe she saw him and maybe thought he was going out on the out on the out on the deck and coming back in who knows what was going through her mind and but i don't think anybody should be putting any blame or anything on her about anything and the family feels the same way she is she's going through a traumatic uh incident where she had four roommates that were murdered uh she was able to garner some information that helped out the affidavit uh, the identification of the black clothes of the black mask over his nose uh, the bushy eyebrows, approximate height, uh, approximate build, very critical to the uh, investigation. I mean, if they bring in a guy that's six six and doesn't match the description, right? Then you have a different. But it seems in line with what, what the defendant looks like in this case, to a certain. You know, folks, I know that it's very difficult uh, to understand the thought process of, of, of DM, right? And, but look at it in, in the vision of someone that may have been intoxicated. It was what, 4.30 in the morning, extremely tired, but you know, they were out all night partying. Someone that just didn't recognize what she saw. Did she, she didn't know, of, of course, what had occurred. I find it hard, or I, I shouldn't say find it hard. I, I question, like, how did they not call the police for almost seven hours? That's very difficult to understand also. But, you know, something we also have to realize, this girl, I believe, is 20 years old, DM, 20 years old. Think of uh, your a son or a daughter that's 20 years old. That's a kid. It really is a kid, you know. And maybe she didn't perceive the actual danger or what had occurred or what was occurring. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Hard to be presented with the mask and all of that stuff, but under the circumstances that it occurred, maybe we can understand and maybe none of us should be criticizing this, this young girl who is a victim also, according to the attorney, the Gonsalves and surely is she lost all four of her friends. So I think we have to give her a benefit of a doubt and, and wait and see what she has to say. Uh, she, she, in fact, is going to be a witness. Degree. So, and maybe they find dark clothes and they find a dark mask in, in some of the locations that they've done. So she's really, it's, I think everyone should be praising her for getting an identification and being able to, give that that solid information there and and not look about uh what she might have or could have or done because we have no idea what mental state she was going through at that time the spring semester started on wednesday january 11th and that means all of the students went back to class that included ethan chapin's two siblings ethan was a triplet and all three of them attended the university of idaho and Ethan Chapin's parents placed a statement out on Facebook. It reads, the support from the University of Idaho and Moscow PD and Idaho State Police has been profound. Maisie and Hunter are rock stars and we couldn't be more proud of them. Their job now is just to be kids, start where they left off, keep goals and aspirations in mind. Ethan is who he was because of our family. His foundation was unwavering. He was so loved he didn't know any different. The stories are endless and amazing. He touched lives we had no idea existed. Ethan was incredible. Ethan's. You know something? I They are just, uh, they are an amazing family. I mean, could you, any of us, imagine this mother and this father and triplets? They're, I'm sure they're just as attached, if not more so, than twins when one of them feels pain, the other two feel pain. I'm sure you guys have heard that about twins, and especially true. But just think of how they lost their brother. 
the, the, the other two triplets, the, the daughter and, and, and another son. And the fact that they also went to the University of Idaho and they're back in school. You know, that old thing of, you know, life goes on, life is for the living. It's all true, but try to practice that when you lost your 20-year-old son to a murderer, you know. Try to practice that. So to any of us, myself included, have that in our hearts to be forgiving or have that intuitiveness to, to get on with life. I mean, the grieving process, you know, they, they say when a parent loses a child, the parent never, ever, ever gets over it. And I believe that. But this mother uh, and this family is just incredible and uh, deserves all, all the credit in the world. Uh, just amazing people. And, you know, I think that I would maybe, and this is just me, maybe I would maybe hold on to a little bit more of the, the, the vindictiveness and the punishment and the focus more on that. That's probably not the right thing to do. Probably the right thing to do is what this mom is doing, Ethan, uh, Ethan's mom, and to, to try to move on and to try to err on the side of love rather than hatred and uh, vengeance and vindictiveness. But yet, at the same time, she lost her son. His parents went on to say that they've met with prosecutors and anything that they or Ethan had is now frozen by the defense. That includes two vehicles, any of his belongings, and a set of golf clubs. We are going to ask the court to set preliminary hearing out into June. We would request the third or fourth week of June and probably four or five days for preliminary hearing. Mr. Koberger understands his right to a timely preliminary hearing, and he's willing to waive the time to allow us time to obtain this case. Ann Taylor is. You know, amazing uh, to me, a lot of people had questioned, oh, uh, what does Brian Koberger do now that there's no court case for, um, for six months? What does he do? He sits in jail. He sits in jail. Do you want him to get bailed out? He sits in jail till this was a decision made by his defense team. And the reason they're doing it is, A, to investigate, to in hire their own investigators, and to tr tr try and take what they know of the evidence already submitted and to try to create doubt with that evidence. And part B is they want the discovery. And for you guys that aren't familiar with that term, discovery is all the evidence, all the paperwork, everything that the prosecution has, they must turn over to the defense. So that is what they're waiting for. But six months, they're going to do their investigation. I question also, how do you freeze the crime scene? The crime scene, well, they can freeze the house just so they have access to it to conduct their investigation. However, the crime scene was released by the police department. And I believe they, well, they started to clean the crime scene. And then that was, uh, it was ordered to stop, to stop cleaning the crime scene. So now they have six months to go to do their own, the defense, to do their own investigation. And that also includes all the cell phone records, all the scientific evidence, blood, DNA, autopsy reports, toxicology reports, which the autopsy reports have never been released, have they? Nor have the toxicology reports. So the defense has a right to all that also. That is all part of discovery that the defense is going to demand. So they're going to be doing their investigation. Uh, and, you know, I don't know, the laws on discovery are a little bit different in every state. New York has uh, the most ridiculous. They, the, the prosecution now, and it's almost impossible, they're required to turn over everything within 15 days, one five, one day more than two weeks, which is almost impossible. In a case like this, it would be impossible. So it's um, the discovery, the defense is going to try to thwart everything. Now, 
We don't know the results either of the search warrant at his apartment. We have no idea of the results of that. What were the results of the search warrant at his home in Pennsylvania, his parents' home? The FBI hit that with 50 or 60 agents. We don't know what they collected. Did they collect blood? any blood evidence? How about the car? How about the car? What did they collect from that car? That car was going to be processed forensically with all kinds of chemicals to bring up anything that may have been hidden. After all, the FBI witnessed him cleaning that car in his driveway in Pennsylvania. I had when when that had occurred, uh, we had Michael Vecchioni on, the former Brooklyn prosecutor, and I was on with Phil Grimaldi, and we had said, you know something, I would have jumped them right there. New York City, city-style policing, NYPD. He's trying to destroy evidence. And the three exceptions to a search warrant are the three E's. Evidence, endanger, or escape. Destroy evidence. Try to endanger the someone, the police or someone else. And escape, try, trying to escape. So right there, he was trying to destroy evidence. But they waited, so he was able to clean up that car. The other thing was... When the FBI was watching him, and not only were they watching him with their own eyes, they had a drone above the house videoing everything. He threw his garbage into the neighbor's garbage pail. What was in that? That he was trying to thwart the investigation by throwing his garbage into his neighbor's garbage pail. Is that suspicious conduct? Is that evidence of potential hiding, potential guilt? You bet. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, what are you waiting for? Go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. And also share us with your friends, and please make comments. We love to hear your comments, even if you disagree with us. That's fine. I like to answer. I read almost all of them. I like to answer most of them. I can't answer every single one of them, but we really appreciate you guys. And we, we appreciate that you are fans and, and uh, of true crime and real crime. And we try to give it to you from a police perspective, but not just that in an educational fashion. Uh, we, myself was, a, I was a college professor for 10 and a half years. Michael Geary is a current college professor with a law degree. Phil Grimaldi is from the University of Brooklyn. <laughs> He's from the streets. We try to bring on prosecutors, and we like to teach what we know and share our knowledge on investigation. We also have a Patreon with three different levels. If you want to support us financially, you could become part of our Patreon. And we have a YouTube channel memberships with, count them, five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font they're part of our YouTube channel memberships, and we appreciate our friends, our subscribers, and our fans on Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. It's Brian Koberger's public defender, and she requested a preliminary hearing for her client, but asked that it be scheduled almost six months from now. Attorneys were kind of surprised by that, while others were not. This will actually give the defense time to look through evidence that they received from the prosecution. That's called discovery. The investigation, of course, is ongoing, as is processing of evidence, including examining data from his electronic devices. His white Hyundai Elantra is also being processed for evidence. The amount of evidence turned over to the defense in this case will be voluminous, likely terabytes worth of data. The statement of him being exonerated implicitly meant that he was innocent of the crimes. He used the word exonerated. That's why we put that in the statement. Jason Labar represented Brian Koberger for several days following his in Monroe County, Pennsylvania. He's actually the chief public defender for that county and represented Koberger during the extradition proceedings. He spoke with Labar about the probable cause affidavit possible defenses he sees. It's a strong circumstantial case, uh, but the evidence when it's viewed individually, you can attack that evidence as, as a defense. The DNA evidence that's recovered from the sheath, for instance, uh, I believe that to potentially be touch DNA. 
transfer DNA, uh, which would mean that it could remain on that sheath for an indefinite period of time if undisturbed. That's one way of attacking that type of evidence that doesn't put him at the scene of the crime the night of, just that he merely touched that sheath at some point in time. Uh, the ID by DM is, is obviously going to be contested at the time of the preliminary hearing. I don't believe hearsay is admissible in Idaho under the rules, so I would it would be likely that DM is going to testify at the preliminary hearing when it gets to that point, so cross-examination of her is going to be key in the case. Labar told me he will continue to work with Brian Koberger's family. They are located in Pennsylvania, although he's no longer a member of the defense team. So that's it for the seven developments that we've seen since the release of that probable cause. Amazing, guys, right? Here we are. Uh, an arrest was you know, made, uh, his, his uh, two court appearances, and all of a sudden, we're talking about trial and we're talking about the evidence and we're talking about thwarting the evidence and the fact that the DNA on the sheath is touch DNA and it's not as reliable as other DNA. But one of the things that uh, that is for sure is that they have more evidence than this. They have a lot more evidence than this. So I wouldn't worry about, they're already you know, creating this, oh, that DNA, that touch DNA doesn't mean he touched it that night. Well, how do you describe how the, the sheath got there? That's that's one thing. How do you, oh, did he leave it on another date and how, that it was on the bed where where they were lying and they go stamped at that? How do you how do you come up with that? Uh how do you describe what happened there? And look, I'm not gonna litigate this case here because obviously these are um defense attorneys. Um, and, and they're going to they're going to come up with all kinds of different uh, defense reasons. However, don't forget that there's going to be more evidence. There is going to be tons more evidence. I would, you know, we've said it from the very beginning. Science is going to solve this case. I will guarantee to you that there is more. There's blood evidence belonging to Brian Koberger. If his blood is in that crime scene and they can identify it as such as his blood, because they say that commingled blood, blood that if his blood was commingled with the victim's blood, it's much more difficult um, to identify. So if his blood is commingled with Ethan, Zena, Madison's, or Kaylee Gonzalez's blood, it's more difficult uh, to identify. They also have the, the the bloody footprint that wasn't apparently as evident as they used a chemical called amino black. And uh, I wish I had an Ed Wallace too uh, on, on our team because he could explain to you in much uh, more detail what amino black is. And in, in just in my experience, it's a chemical that'll bring up an image that's that's made in blood. So when we talk about a, a footprint, uh, and it was a very specific type of shoe. Now that shoe, we can find out what the bottoms of that shoe, we can go to the company and they can give us a printout of what the very specific bottom of that shoe is. And if that compares to that shoe, it's identified. And then there's something called there's two parts of evidence. I spoke about this again. I hope that you guys are listening. There's class characteristics, and that would be the bottom of the shoe as per what type of shoe it is. All right. The shoe was a, called a van shoe. I don't, I'm not familiar with them, but that was the brand. So the company can provide us with what type of bottom of the shoe that was. And then there's something called individual characteristics. And individual characteristics are how you wear out your shoes. You know, we all walk a certain way. We all wear our shoes out. Maybe in, uh, in in my case, my left shoe wears out on the left side. I guess I walk crookedly. <laughs> I don't know. But we all walk a certain way we wear our shoes out. And there's something on the bottom of your shoes called pits and fissures. And that's created when you step on rocks, glass, whatever, you, that leaves an indentation. 
So if they have that print and they recover that shoe and they compare it against the print, it's almost as good as a fingerprint. So they have, as we said, they have tons more evidence. Uh, and while the defense is working on all these different things, so is the prosecution. Um, the prosecution is working on making their case as tight as 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 humanly possible, and and that's that's what they'll be doing while the defense is spending their six months uh, investigating this. The prosecution is, you know, I know it gets tiring to hear, crossing their t's and dotting their eyes, but that's what that's what they're going to talk about. They also spoke last night about um, the posts that were on Reddit. And I would, I'll give Ashley Banfield credit. She actually had uh, come up with this earlier than uh, 2020 and um, Dateline NBC. So let, let's hear from Ashley Banfield. This was about the Reddit post that may have been made by uh, Brian Koberger. The Reddit posts of a particularly savvy follower of the Idaho murders, who it sure seems may have had firsthand knowledge of the crime. Joining me now are retired FBI Special Agent Jennifer Koffendoffer, forensic psychologist Chris Mohandi, and trial lawyer Trent Copeland. Welcome to all three of you. Uh, Jennifer, I want to begin with you because I've been reading these, I find very disturbing um, posts, uh, almost braggadocious, as though this person knew exactly what happened in that house well before the affidavit told us some things about that. I also felt like there was a similarity in the attitude and the writing style between the, the Facebook poster named Papa Roger and the Reddit poster named Inside Looking. Is that just me or do you see that too? Because you look with a whole other set of eyes. Well, there definitely is a similarity. Um, just as you said, in their style and their comp in their uh, details, in details that indeed, in many instances, only the killer or the police would know. So from those standpoints, yes, you hit the nail on the head. And if that's the case, um, they become a, a lot more uh, evidentiary. Uh, I would assume, Trent, that all of a sudden, if well, I don't have the tools that the FBI has, the, the things that used to be in Jennifer Koffendorfer's suitcase are magic. Um, they can subpoena ISP information, et cetera. But Trent, do you see that as something that could be just mana from heaven for prosecutors? If they can link accounts from Facebook to Reddit that brag about all these things and they're accurate, and they were well before that was made public. Is that just sort of like almost smoke and gun? I think it is. And um, and look, here's what's important: not just it was just that it was um, he had an interest in the case, but if it can be established that from the timing and the sequence that he knew things and he was you know publishing things on Reddit as as these various people that he claimed to be on in these chat rooms, if that can be established, actually that he knew these things before police knew them, before they were publicly available, then those things are huge from an evidence standpoint. And of, you know, the BTK killer, remember him, Ashley, it was his bragging, it was him mocking the police, it was him sending floppy disks to the police about the crimes that got him arrested, and that was his undoing. So these things can have enormous evidentiary value, these things, you know, killers of this nature tend to want the attention. They tend to want to be the smartest person in the chat room, so to speak. And in this instance, this could very well be another linchpin in addition to DNA, in addition to the cell um, towers, in addition to all the other things that the police currently have. This could also be one other thing. And as you say, Ashley, it could really carry the day. You know, it is amazing that if that was him, um, basically putting out stuff that was known only to investigators and he would know it because he was the killer. That is tremendously, tremendously powerful. And the point is, is just like this, the, uh, this defense attorney just said is that they can obtain this really easily. And so Ashley Banfield said the same thing. They search his internet service provider and not just that they grabbed his computer out of his apartment. So they have all of that stuff. So, they're either smiling right now and saying, yeah, it was him. He was bragging about it. You know, 
We had a case in the 1970s in New York City, and it became internationally known, uh, the son of Sam. And he was known as the 44 caliber killer. And his name was David Berkowitz. And he, his MO was that he would go to lover's lanes and shoot the couple in a car that were either having sex or making out or whatever. And, um, he would then brag about it. He would, there was a writer for the New York daily news. His name was Jimmy Breslin and the son of Sam started writing to Jimmy Breslin and taunting the police. They'll never catch me this, that, and the other thing. And he also was taunting the police. So is this a trait of a serial killer? And the other thing is, is we're talking about, I believe, and I'm, again, I'm not an expert on serial killers, but it seems like Brian Koberger has a lot of traits, personality traits of a serial killer. Will we find out that he's done this before? I think there's a good potential of that, that we'll find out that he's killed before. And one of the ways that we can find that out, obviously, is the... Uh, is his DNA now is in CODIS, which stands, the FBI runs CODIS, stands for the um, Combined DNA Index System. So his DNA is now in there. So, which can be compared uh, against what's this, there's two categories of DNA in CODIS. One is offender DNA, taken from offenders who have been arrested for felonies, convicted, and the second part of the DNA that is in CODIS is forensic DNA, which means DNA that have, has been taken from crime scenes and yet to be identified. Could his DNA be in that? Could it show that he has killed before? I think the Pennsylvania authorities are busy working hard and looking into cases that may fit the MO of this modus operandi method of operation they have any other killings with a knife with a k-bar knife in a house inexplicable any killings like that they're busy working the fbi probably on a national level is looking uh you know and, and they can also do that through dna um so yeah does he have the traits of a uh a potential serial killer i, I believe he does I actually believe he does, and again, I'm not um, I'm not a an expert on this stuff. And when you hear the experts, they don't all agree. Some of them, you know, getting anyone, a whole group of people, to agree on anything is a difficult thing. Yeah, I remember that moment uh, where BTK said in court, just so matter of factly, every little detail as though we were all just little pieces in his game board, right. uh, and it was just joy for him to just hold us all in his grip for as long as it took him to spill out those vile details. I, I hope we don't have that in this case, but in the same sense, I hope we do so we get the answers. But that's your, no, that's your bucket, Chris Mohandi. There was something else that Inside Looking wrote. I'm just going to read it out here. It says, all I'm saying is that the killer is not a registered SO, which is sex offender. I would bet all my chips on that. Not an SO came up in so many other posts. It seemed like he's fixated on that. And of course, what happened later? Uh, the police said, this isn't a sex crime. Right. Well, um, you know, again, it's possible, uh, you know, that uh, a killer like this will, you know, taunt uh, in whatever methods available, whether it's a, you know, Zodiac style, you know, taunting that we saw using newspapers and so forth, or, you know, uh, some other forum like social media, you know, it's also possible that, you know, there's just other people out there that are arrogant and uh, braggarts and so forth. But certainly narcissism is going to be a key feature of this kind of individual. And there was a certain pride that was in that statement of, of knowing with, of, with degree of certainty uh, that would be consistent if indeed it's learned later on. Thank you for watching. You know, interesting. Uh, I can tell you also, though, from uh, law enforcement experience, that many violent criminals, uh, they were proud many times of their violent nature. 
but they never wanted to be tagged a sex offender or a rapist. I mean, everyone that's in law enforcement knows that that is the lowest, lowest person on the totem pole inside a prison, that you're viewed as the worst of the worst if you're a sex offender. And I mean, just think of, of these people that are all not good people being judgmental about the crime that someone else committed. So when this behavioral analyst says that, you know, and they're all saying there was no SO, uh, sex offender, or but is that really true from a psychological perspective? Could he, in fact, have all the traits of a sex offender and in this attack being very sexual, yet there was no uh, overtly overtly a, a sexual attack? Could that be possible? I think many uh, behavioral analysts, when they looked at the son of Sam, they believed that in that case also. There was no overt sexual attack. However, he was shooting and killing people in a lover's lane that were having sex. So what was that all about? Did that have to do with his own uh, inadequacy, that he was he was shooting people that were having sex in a lover's lane? In the same way that this attack could have something uh, something to do with it. I definitely think it could, even though it's not overtly out there that, uh, oh, this was a sex attack, but could, could it be in his psyche that, uh, that this was, this was a possible, this was a possible motive, a psychosexual reason. And again, Dr. Cannon does not have a PhD. So, um, <laughs> you can either believe Dr. Cannon and again, I don't know, I'm not a doctor either. I'm just using that as a, uh, Many people um, that are behavioral analysts that aren't PhDs or or have doctorates, uh, you know, in that field, uh, make these predictions. You know, one of the things that w- when we we hear about all the evidence that they have in this case, and we don't even know all. When I say all the evidence, very little of the evidence has been released, so we don't know about all the evidence they have. But even what they've released so far. It's very powerful. But what do attorneys think? Well, how do they think they're going to defend this case? That's what we're going to listen to right now. There is in custody. He is appearing here in court with his attorneys. Brian Koberger back in court, and he says he wants a preliminary hearing, but it's not going to happen until the summer. His former attorney is here with me. I'm Anjanette Levy, and welcome to Law & Crime Sidebar Podcast. Brian Koberger, that 28-year-old PhD student from Washington State University, was in court on Thursday for a very brief hearing. We knew this was going to be all about scheduling and whether or not his attorneys were going to ask for a preliminary hearing. That's a hearing where prosecutors are required to put on witnesses and evidence to show that there's probable cause that Koberger committed the murders of Kaylee Gonsalves, Maddie Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. Well, it was a big shock because Ann Taylor, his public defender, said they want this preliminary hearing to be held at the very end of June. Take a listen. Are you waiving your right to a speedy preliminary hearing and agreeing that that hearing can be held outside the 14-day period? Yes. Joining us to discuss what happened in that Lataw County courtroom today is Jason Labar. He's the chief public defender for Monroe County, Pennsylvania, and actually represented Brian Koberger for a very short time during his extradition hearing in Pennsylvania. Jason, welcome to Sidebar. Thanks for coming. You know, folks, I just wanted to mention something. A lot of people have asked me or a lot of people have said in the chat, oh, what kind of statement did he make in his interrogation? He invoked counsel, not immediately, but almost almost immediately. He at first was going to say something, and then he said, you know something, I think I need an attorney. So therefore, the police did not have a chance to interview him and to interrogate him because he invoked counsel. So uh, again, many folks are asking in the chat, oh, what did he say? He didn't say anything. He invoked counsel. Coming on. Good afternoon, and thank you for having me. 
your thoughts on what happened today. Uh, Ann Taylor, the attorney representing Brian Koberger, it, asking for this six-month delay in the preliminary hearing. It, I found it quite unusual. That, that would be something that would never happen here in Pennsylvania, uh, given the time constraints of hearings. However, I'm sure Attorney Taylor had good reason to ask for the delay. Do you have any idea what her reasons could be? I, I can't think of what they would be, but obviously, you know, there are there's still investigation going on. We know the white Hyundai Elantra was seized from the home there in Pennsylvania. So they're probably searching that. We're talking test results, terabytes of information, social media accounts, phone records, uh, you name it, they are probably going to get it. And will they get that, do you think, before the prelim? It, it seems like in the five months before the preliminary hearing, some of this discovery will be accessible. I know Attorney Taylor said that it was being continued for the discovery purpose. Uh, obviously, the DNA can probably be back if there's any matches with unidentified blood DNA at the scene. Uh, but I don't know what it was actually continued for, but I have speculation around the idea that perhaps it's to re receive the search warrants. Those search warrants in Pennsylvania, as well as Washington, although you could file a motion to receive those, uh, by operation of law become available after 60 days, they become unsealed and are available. So that's a potential reason for the delay, as well as like you said, terabytes of information from the cell phones from not only Brian's phone, but the four victims' phones could potentially be available and going through by the time uh, it rolls around for the preliminary hearing. And wouldn't she be entitled, though, as his defense attorney, even if those items are under seal, the search warrants and the affidavits, wouldn't she be entitled to those even if they were still sealed? I, I actually don't know the answer to that because it is Pennsylvania search warrants as well as Washington search warrants. Certainly Idaho search warrants are executed. She should be eligible to retain those before the preliminary hearing. I'm assuming that she'd also have those prior to the preliminary hearing from Pennsylvania and Washington, but I, I really don't know the answer to that, unfortunately. I want you to discuss with me the probable cause affidavit. You've read it like everyone else, the 19 pages. It discusses DNA evidence, cell phone pings, some type of vans, a shoe print. Uh, we don't know if Brian Cope. You know, folks, folks I'd just like to say that, I mean, this case was put off on, on Thursday, was put off for almost nearly six months. So they don't go back to court till June 26th. I mean, that's a lot of time to do an investigation for the defense. That, that you know, and I said uh, yesterday, when when uh, Thursday, when this occurred, you know what they're going to do when they come back on the 26th. Can anyone guess? I'm going to tell you what they're going to do. They're going to ask to have a, have a, uh, a stay until September. So this case probably won't go, it won't start, won't proceed until uh, until September. So they'll put it off again. So in essence, they're going to have another uh, another two months. So that would be a total of eight months to to investigate this case. And you know, so we'll be getting more and more information. I think they they have to release some information in March. So we'll be getting more and more as the people that are following this case. We'll get more and more information on the evidence. I would like to know, um, and I think most people would like to know, the results of the autopsy, uh, because that would include evidence that was collected, forensic evidence. And everyone, of course, everyone that follows this case, when we hear that the victims resisted, everyone wants to know everyone wants to know this, is there DNA underneath the fingernails of any of the victims? Because I believe if there is, that's the end of this case. That's over. It's over. That's a slam dunk. I don't, I don't know any defense attorney uh, that could explain how that got there. Uh, and, and that's what we're waiting for. So when we just talk about some of this evidence, and then we hear about the uh, the evidence from the pathologist. And again, we do we know, do we in fact know that the murder weapon was never recovered? We don't know that. There are the warrants on the family's home in Pennsylvania. 
the warrant on his uh, home at University of Washington University, where he his apartment. We don't know the results of that, do we? There could be other evidence that is smoking gun slam dunk. You can use any other poetic alliteration to describe the evidence, but we don't know that. So when this evidence starts coming, why do you think that the defense has asked for six months? And as I said, when they get when they come back on June 26th, I can almost guarantee that they're going to ask for a stay until September. No one, I should say no one, many people in the criminal justice field, trials, judges, lawyers, everyone involved with this case doesn't want to work through the summer. So you may ask, well, then, though, you know, those that are the uh, innocent through proven guilty, which we know Brian is, that's the rights he gets. Oh, so he has to sit in jail? Yeah, well, yeah. I don't see him getting bailed. I believe his defense attorney will request it. They'll request bail with conditions, an ankle monitor, home um, confinement. But I don't think he'll get that. I don't think he'll uh, get that at all. This is a death penalty case. I don't believe that they're going to issue bail in any any circumstance. Oberger owns a pair of Vans sneakers, but they found a shoe print consistent with that there. The eyewitness identification, uh, your thoughts as a defense attorney representing, you know, many people accused of murder on what that probable cause affidavit alleged. I had an opportunity to obviously go through the affidavit of probable cause several times now. Uh, I looked it over carefully. Uh, it's a strong circumstantial case, uh, but the evidence when it's viewed individually, you can attack that evidence as a defense attorney. Now, again, this, we're just in the infancy of the case. So much of this evidence is actually going to come after the preliminary hearing time. Although we don't know now with this five month delay, what's going to be available. Uh, but if you take the DNA evidence that's recovered from the sheath, for instance, uh, I believe that to potentially be touch DNA, transfer DNA, uh, which would mean that it could remain on that sheath for an indefinite period of time if undisturbed. That's one way of attacking that type of evidence that doesn't put him at the scene of the crime the night of, just that he merely touched that sheath at some point in time. Uh, the ID by DM is, is obviously going to be contested at the time of the preliminary hearing. I don't believe hearsay is admissible in Idaho under the rules, so I would it would be likely that DM is going to testify at the preliminary hearing when it gets to that point, so cross-examination of her is going to be key in the case uh, to possibly get even more holes as far as the identification is concerned. So let me um, ask you, you know, you think it's a strong circumstantial affidavit, but did you see anything else there? I mean, did you, you said you saw places where it could be attacked and right now it's words on paper. That's all we have to go on. Right. And, and there's no direct evidence uh, linking him other than that transfer DNA on the sheath. The idea, as I stated already, isn't complete 100%. Oh, it's Brian Koberger. Um, the white Elantra can't be determined to be his white Elantra. I mean, there's circumstantial evidence indicating that it could potentially be his white Elantra, but there's certainly not direct evidence. It's pretty strong, uh, attorney, that he was driving it when the when the police pulled him over. So that's a ridiculous that statement. It can't be determined to be his, whether he owns it or not. It was it was he uses it. It's his cars. Well, it may be registered to someone else. But in fact, it may also be registered to him. So how can he say that? Oh, it can't be proven. He's driving it when he's pulled over by the police. Don't you think that's evidence? I think so. Uh, they don't have direct evidence that he's driving the white Elantra. Uh, they're using cell phone uh, pings, which we all know as defense attorneys aren't GPS location coordinates. If it was GPS location coordinates, you're talking down to a meter as to where Brian Koberger was at the time of these crimes. Whereas a cell phone tower ping is that you're within a radius of that tower up to 20 miles. And obviously, uh, Mr. Koberger lived within 10 miles of the university. Well, folks, I'm not going to have him try the case right here, but we, you could see where the defense is going with, uh, with this case, where that what they will attack. 
They'll attack the evidence. They'll attack the way the evidence was processed. They'll attack everything possible with the science. It's tough to, um, if they have an actual sample of his DNA, that's very difficult uh, to attack because it's it's like uh, trillions to one that it's 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 uh, Brian Koberger. So I I don't see them attacking that part of the evidence. I think what they would attack is uh, is how it was collected, and that's what they did that in the OJ case, and they did a good job. Except during the presentation of a lot of the DNA evidence in the OJ case the jury practically fell asleep. So you need someone that's going to present that evidence that is a little um, more uplifting than the people they had in the OJ case, which uh, it was just too, uh, you know, as I said, the jury practically fell asleep during that. Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in the New York City area, then Joe Murray is your man. He's a retired NYPD police officer and an outstanding defense attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell phone at 718 718- 514-3855. You can email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. He's got a website, jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big uh, supporter of Police Off the Cuff. In fact, one of our biggest supporters. And uh, he, he's, as I said, he's a great defense attorney. And uh, you won't be sorry if you give him a call. So, folks, we're going to continue to follow this case. I just thought I would revisit it today because there was all – those two shows last night, which I actually wasn't going to watch them. But then I said, you know, let me see. And there was nothing new that I didn't know on, on those. Uh, uh. In fact, Joe Murray's in the chat right now. He said he loves us guys. Thanks, Joe. We love you back. Uh, so I want to see if there was anything, but there was nothing really new. But Dateline NBC in 2020 both did the show at the same time. And I guess for the people across this great country that, aren't aware of this case it's sort of you know put it on the map from tv you know from a tv perspective and we're going to stay following this case uh if anything new occurs uh so much of it we've reported on and we've given our uh educated opinion and i th- hope that we've we've done a good job on this uh and we we also would love to applaud you guys for following us with this um because it's a complicated case. It really is. It's complicated. And it touches, it hits all the buttons, you know, potential serial killer, the psychology of it, the uh, PhD student, uh, DNA, the car, the cell phone pings, the victimology, the perpology. It's got so many elements to it, this case. So as I said, we're going to keep following this case. And we, if there's anything new or even... Uh, information that breaks on this case we're going to report it to you i want to uh i want to thank all you guys for tuning in today 12 noon isn't always the greatest time but uh this way you can watch your football game later on and i i didn't interrupt that folks from bill cannon retired nypd sergeant i want you to all have a great day uh god bless and stay safe One episode, just